Hello, and welcome to At the Back of Your Mind, the Inspire the Mind podcast that brings you the science on mental health with a no-nonsense attitude. I'm one of your hosts, Juliette, together with my scientist friends, Carolina and Mariam. We're often joined by fabulous guests, so grab a cup of tea and let's dive into what's exactly at the back of your mind today. everyone, I just wanted to give you a quick heads up about some of the topics touched upon that some listeners may find triggering. So trigger warning for discussions about suicidal thoughts and behaviour and self-harm. Take care of yourselves while listening and enjoy the episode. Hey, it's your boy Akim Sule, Dr. Akim Sule. I'm basically a psychiatrist. I work as a local consultant psychiatrist with the Essex Partnership University NHS Foundation Trust. I'm a co-founder of Hip Hop Psych, which I co-founded with Dr. Becky Inkster. I'm also an honorary visiting research associate with the Department of Psychiatry, Cambridge University, and also a Wolfson College research associate. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's me. Absolutely incredible. Well, welcome to our podcast. (laughs) I'm excited. Let's do this. I'm really excited, you know. I feel like Rocky Balbao. Maybe tell us a bit about Hip Hop Psych what that's all about, like, you know, what is it and how it came to be. So the way I like to look at hip-hop psych is it's like a crew, you know, those rap crews, whether it's Rakim and Eric B, whether it's Wu-Tang Clan, it's a crew. So it consists of myself and it also consists of Dr. Becky Inkster. Now, basically, in terms of what it's about, it's basically about me, a psychiatrist, and Becky being a neuroscientist, amongst other things we do. And basically what we do is we analyze hip-hop lyrics and we basically look for themes related to mental health. And that could be in terms of vulnerability or in terms of resilience. And also we can have some, you know, other discussions about anti-stigma campaigns. Now we've got four main objectives. One of the objectives is that we want to do public mental health education. So to the public, Two is we also want to look at research. Three, we want to look at making psychotherapies available to people who normally wouldn't access it. So those would be people of color and young folk, really. In terms of how it started, I'm sure you want to know how it started. So basically, I've always been into hip hop. So I've been in hip hop since 1979. So that shows you how old I am. Um, um, And basically, listening to hip hop, I began to notice a number of themes. So when I was doing my rotational scheme, psychiatrist scheme in Oxford, I used to engage with the medical students. Now, what you might not know is that most medical students don't want to go into psychiatry. They want to be glorious physicians and glorious surgeons. But I found out that when I taught using um, hip hop themes, it got them more interested. So I've been, do- I've been doing it for some time. So after I've been doing it for some time and getting results, when I then moved to start lecturing in Cambridge. The Cambridge Psychiatry Society invited me. And these are medical students interested in doing psychiatry. And I told Becky, I'm like, because I'd met Becky in Oxford. I'm like, Becky, yo, I'm doing this thing. Would you join me? This is what I do. This is how I do it. Becky came, brought her neuroscience theme, and the rest is history. So we've done talks across the world. Canada, we've done talks in nightclubs. We recently did a talk in Romania. When we did our talk in Canada, we called it the straight out of Cambridge talk after the NWA, <laughs> you know, straight out of Compton. 
Now, I guess if you don't mind me going on, you know me, I can talk from <laughs> days to days. The stage is yours, Akeem. One of the questions they always ask us is why hip hop? You understand? Now, for you to appreciate why what hip hop has to do with mental health, we need to look at the origins from of hip hop, mm. and this is really important. So, where did hip hop start from? Most of you would have heard that traditional view that it started from South Bronx, say seventies to the eighties. But I'm here to tell you that that is a lie from the pits of hell. <laughs> because when you look back, no, true, true, true fact. Let's look at centuries before that in West Africa. They had the grills. That would be where Senegal and Gambia is. Now, the grills were basically poets. They would say poems. They would talk about oral tradition. They would basically talk about politics through a poetic form. Not dissimilar from what we have today. Where I come from, I'm Nigerian. I'm, I'm Yoruba. And we have this thing called Oriki. And Oriki is basically oral tradition. And in my Oriki, for example... My great-grandfather, there's this stuff where he talks about where we came from. And there's something very interesting because in our Oriki, he, he basically talks about how he, he's sexy to some of the women because of his large eyeballs. Now, I know it sounds sexist, but I'm just giving you an example <laughs> that this didn't, um, ha how this thing came to be. So let's look at that transition through slavery. Let's think about the trauma of the transatlantic slavery. And also it went to Jamaica. But then when we look at North America, it was act, the movement was actually started by a pioneer called DJ Cool Hug. And DJ Cool Hug was a 16-year-old kid who lived in South Bronx who developed the breaks. And he used to throw these block parties. And he found out that if you played the most exciting part on both records, you could actually prolong the loop. And that's how the break, you understand? Right. Now with hip-hop, there are five elements, you know. We think about graffiti, DJing, breakdancing, emceeing. But guess what the fifth element is? It's knowledge. Okay. Very, very important. So now we're in South Bronx. It's the 70s. What's happening in, in, in the Bronx? So we have 70s to 80s. We have the heroin epidemic, the crack epidemic, and it's decimating Black and Latino communities who are the origins of this culture. So that's one. Also, let's think about it. You have the decimation of the Black Panthers. The, you have... Prior to that, you had the assassination of black leaders. So it's basically chaos. But through hip-hop, you, you understand, if you therefore listen to the music, it will basically give you a narrative of the vulnerabilities that lead to mental health. But hip-hop was also a way of bringing the communities together. And let's look at where it is now. It's a multi-billion industry. We have people like Rihanna out there. You know, she, 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 she's a billionaire, about to be a billionaire. Virgil Abloh, who passed away, um, you know, the Louis Vuitton creative director. I mean, he's as much hip hop as anyone else. So we see both the vulnerabilities for mental health problems, but also the resilience. And therefore, if you comb the lyrics, you can see elements of both. And that is what's so exciting about hip hop. So what Becky and I do, both being hip hop lovers, we comb the lyrics, analyze it and basically begin to have these conversations. Wow, and then you you travel across the world and you deliver these talks on on what what you have perceived of these lyrics and how yes. they can be used to to help local communities and people to what is it is it to address issues that the community might have is it to empower them put words into feelings that they might be experiencing what's the end goal It's all those things because like I said you can look at lyrics in hip hop 
and it can be for public mental health education because you know there's a lot of stigma with mental health and in, in certain communities mm -hmm. it's difficult but once you comb the lyrics so i'll give you an example let's say an artist like tupac tupac shakur's lyrics shed so many tears he says back in elementary afra done misery and he's basically talking about what it's like growing up in a community where you have a death sentence by 25 in some of these communities due to what's going on you know what it's like for a black man they they die very early it might be due to violence mm. it might be to growing up in socioeconomic deprived circumstances which we know is due to structural racism and things like that you understand and Tupac says things like, I grew up amongst a dying breed. And by coming the lyrics, you get the sense of how desperate he is. Two ways, looking at the lyrics itself, one, and also how he says it. So there's this thing called prosodic intonation. So when he goes back in elementary, there's an angst there, you know, mm -hmm. which you can feel it. So if you're talking to a young person who can't express themselves, if they listen to Tupac, say, did you feel like that? That's called emotional anchoring. Or you can basically show them the lyrics. I'll give you another example. Some of you might know Eminem. Eminem is one of the dopest lyricists. You look at a, a track like Stan. And when you look at um, a, a track like Stan, there's a very interesting part. I will just take some a, a very in, in important thing he says. Uh, he talks about sometimes I even caught myself to see how much I it bleeds. It's like adrenaline. So you take... A bar like that. So this stand deals with a fan who is very obsessed. He talks about his growing up. You see things that there might be problems with his attachment. He talks about self-harm. What do we know about self-harm neurobiologically? You are scientists. Well, one of the theories about why people self-harm is there's, there's chronic dysphoria. Why is there chronic dysphoria? Because people don't have enough endorphins. Why are endorphins? Mm -hmm. Endorphins are a natural heroin. Now, if you don't have enough endorphins, what happens is their neural adaptation. So there's an upregulation of those new receptors. So when you are having chronic dysphoria, that can be due to abuse, due to problems with oxytocin, due to attachment, your endorphin levels are low. When people self-harm, what happens is there's a release of beta endorphins. And by that time, because there's an upregulation, that gives you a feeling of well-being. And it's interesting. So I'll quote that lyric again. Because Eminem basically say, you know, in, in, terms, in terms of that lyrics, he says, sometimes I even caught myself to see how much it bleeds. It's like adrenaline. The pain is, su is such a sudden rush for me. And so we get a sense about why people self-harm. So I remember we were having this talk and talking about it. Obviously, I don't want the, the listeners to be triggered. But on one of the talks we did, this lady walk, walked up to us and said, now I understand why self-harm. And so you begin to open up these particular conversations. And I think that's really a, a really dope thing to do, really. And the good thing is, we're not just talking about young folk. We've done a talk in Wales. And in Wales, it was an older group. Now, these guys don't listen to Eminem or Kendrick Lamar. But what was interesting was, Becky came up with this idea of telling them that Eminem was no different from one of their poets who spoke about nihilistic yes. themes and immediately we did that they began to open up and they started arguing with us like oh well in my opinion eminem meant this i'm like <laughs> oh so you're now a hip-hop fan you know and i think that's what's dope about hip-hop you can have those things and we've spoken about vulnerability what about resilience so there's a rapper called Mano. Mano has this song all the above and we actually we actually published this but in all the above he talks about 
when when I'm feeling down, I envision Obama, I envision um, Ferraris. What's that? That is called positive visual imagery. So have you noticed that rappers, when they rap about things, what do they do? They rap about the models they haven't yet dated. They've rapped about the cars they haven't yet ridden. They talk about the champagne they haven't yet popped. What are they doing? They're building a rich visual imagery of what they aspire to be. Like a mood board. And that helps them to navigate very, very difficult urban environments. So that can help with, with resilience. So just by having these kind of conversations, we're having talks on vulnerabilities as well as resilience. It just goes on and on. I feel like that's like what you've highlighted, you know, that element of storytelling in hip hop. It's so unique mm, absolutely. to hip hop. Like you get storytelling in other genres too, but it's got its own niche. Definitely. And like you say, like it can be translated in so many different ways and allow us to open communication. So I think it's, it's a really valuable, valuable way of doing it. So some of you might have heard about emo hip-hop. So emo hip-hop is like hip-hop by... You, you have artists like Little Peep, you understand? And, you know, Tentacion to mention a few. So there, there's always been the fear that if they're talking about suicide and depression, can it be negative? Well, sometimes you can have these conversations, but also there's also the risk that could there be a contagion effect? So Machine Gun Kelly spoke about how some of these artists, he didn't name names, that they, they're commodifying depression. But at least you be, it begins to unpack those conversations. And Becky and I, we wrote about this in our British Medical Journal paper, which is entitled How Hip-Hop's Progressive Narratives Are Helping to Tackle Mental Health Stigma. So we spoke about the positive and also pos possibility some of the the, the accusations leveled against hip-hop, basically to, 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 to give a balanced picture. It's not that you're trying to reach hard-to-reach communities. Mm. You're opening up a conversation and perhaps letting certain voices that haven't been heard, they certainly haven't been heard in the medical space, yeah. you know, all, all these rappers. You're probably starting a new, a new stream, a new, a new way of bringing you know, a, a form of cultural psychiatry to the mainstream. No, yeah. And my question to you is, what, what's your view in, in cultural or transcultural psychiatry and also how these then interplays with communities in, in, in our society that don't have a place, that, that no, no, are definitely, silenced? Definitely. So I, I think it's really important. If we look at the stats, for example, we find people of African and Caribbean origin they're more likely to be admitted when they are into hospital, more likely when you look at compared to white folk, more likely to, you know, to have a, a you disproportionately be diagnosed with psychosis when they're admitted, they're more likely to come through either being sectioned or through mm -hmm. the prison services. So that tells you something about what's basically going on. And obviously our communities, and I say communities as a black man, given we we sometimes at least find it difficult to trust people in authority. I can give you examples of encounters I've had with the police where the police have barged through my door in a hotel and accused me of sex trafficking and, and gun Bloody trafficking, hell. you understand? So I know what it's like, yeah. So I know what it's like to, to have that. Now, that being said, we have to have those conversations. Hip hop has basically done this for years. Even in the so-called like gangster era, like I, I've given you the example of 
Tupac Shakur, called Ghetto Boys, My Mind is Playing Tricks on Me. They're clearly talking about hallucinations there, about paranoia, you know, and having these kind of conversations. And so the ability to take what something in someone's community and begin to have that conversation then becomes very, very important. And the thing to remember is with hip hop, hip hop is the dominant pop culture. So I don't care whether, even taking it beyond difficult to reach, whether you're black, white, as I've given you the example, no one, I don't care whether you're 50, you're touched in some way by hip hop. You understand? Mm -hmm. It's the dominant culture. So I would argue even beyond transcultural psychiatry, it has a relevance in pop culture. So if you're interested in pop culture, hip hop begins, and I'm not saying you have to be interested in hip hop, but just be observant in what's happening in your environment. And if that's a tool to open conversations, then you basically can have the conversations in terms of discussing mental health, discussing treatment. And also let's look at things like psychotherapies. Why is that people, black folk, are referred for, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy or stuff like that? Is there something to be said about how interventions can be done? So we work with a guy called Raphael Travis and he does like hip hop therapy. And that is basically making, whether it's psychodynamic psychotherapy or CBT, but making it hip hop culture informed because hip hop culture is dominant is is the dominant pop culture and as long as you make it you might begin to reach groups that you won't reach Becky will probably talk tell you about some of the work we're doing like with with a record label for example you know we've done talks in prisons and what you observe these guys like in in prisons you know these guys are really open to discussing with mental health when you come with the right tools I think it's so interesting that you come with this approach with hip hop as the way to to reach communities. Um, and I'd never heard of that, but I think it's it's really cool to have like kind of hip hop like centered therapy to kind of you know kind of tailor it to to use something that is actually going to reach people and allow you to to do the work that needs to be done. Because I I think I don't know if it's perhaps increase in some communities but I find that let's say classic therapy like you know CBT or even mm. more like psychoanalytic approaches it doesn't work with everyone I always give like the example of my grandfather who's in his 70s he could never mm. do psychotherapy like that mm. <laughs> you need to like trick him into it and I think it is quite a clever way to to approach people through through music which is something that you know everyone likes yes. music yeah yes. but I'll give you an example I know we're spoken about psychotherapy and how you use it, but also in like everyday interaction. So irrespective of whether they're into hip hop or country music or, you know, Billie Eilish mm -hmm. or whatever, <laughs> you know, but I can, I can think of a, a, a patient I saw when I was with a doctor, I was asking him questions. He found it very difficult to answer because he suffered with psychosis. And I just noticed he was wearing some like real hip hop gear. He had on a hoodie, white, he had on some very dope sneakers without the laces <laughs> and I, I i just made a guess i said are you into hip-hop he said yes and then before we know we got started talking about music and he basically wrapped his mental state examination wow. <laughs> i just needed to listen <laughs> and it was really good because he rapped about his problems and his difficulties and here was someone i was actually trying to communicate and there was a roadblock it might have been the hierarchy but immediately we opened the conversation on a hip-hop level we became equals 
and it was able to open by rapping. Now, I'm not saying everyone will be able to open by rapping. It could be anything. It could be country. It could be a movie they've watched. It could be a piece of art. But I'm just saying hip-hop is yet a form. Why hip-hop becomes important is, again, as I said, is the predominant pop culture, really. And that's really important. I think it's really important that we don't judge people from this culture. We can think, for example, the Tottenham riots that happened years ago and how communities mostly of color mm -hmm. got judged. You understand? We can look at things like the leveling up agenda. They've made it a north-south divide. Forgetting that in inner-city London areas, this so-called rich London, are these people in these communities, often people of color, black folk, are they getting this largesse that happens in London? You understand? We need to have these kind of conversations. We need to understand these people's world and take it from there, really. in Nigeria but you also yep. trained in the UK and yes. I think going back to transcultural psychiatry and this is something that I, I find mm. really interesting I was talking to one of one of our colleagues actually who works in the Amazon uh, in yeah. Peru and and Brazil mm. and he I think he also done, has done some work in Uganda and his his work focuses on how diagnosis Mm. can differ from culture to culture how mm. in the UK certain presentations or you know might be diagnosed a certain way, but maybe mm. in other parts of the world would be more embedded in the way that the society functions and it wouldn't be a diagnosis in itself and it would sort of be supported by the community and things would be dealt with differently. I wanted to know, because I'm curious, because you had such a training mm. in such different cultures, how you see that? No, you are, you are right. I mean, for example, I'm Yoruba and there's no word for depression. <laughs> you have things like Munronu. So where I say that is when people would describe depression in different ways, like Monronu, that is when you are thinking too much, which mm -hmm. would be rumination, <laughs> you understand? Mm -hmm. Or people tend to somatize, you know? So you might have had, for example, in Bradford, where they've got a lot of people who are South Asian, Pakistani, Indian communities and the likes, they basically have a Bradford depression inventory where they score a lot of somatic symptoms, whether that be headache or back pain or stuff. So... In communities such as where I come from, they, they, we don't have a word for being depressed. It might be, you know, it might be stuff like, you know, I'm not happy. <laughs> so it's a negative, how you describe not the absence of joy rather than depression <laughs> itself. Mm. And so learning the language of people, learning their culture also examines. For, for example, someone talking about witches, there's a belief in witches, a, a belief yeah. in the supernatural. And how is that interpreted, really? Yeah, so definitely all these things come into play. Like, I remember when I was in Nigeria and in medical school, that's where I got interested in psychiatry by seeing, like, the different presentations and seeing how the families come together, but also looking at things like stigma as well. The family can take care of someone with mental health problems. That can be both a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. A blessing in the sense mm -hmm. that someone with psychosis in the early stage might get married off, <laughs> you understand? And basically would have children, the, the people support. But the problem is if the, if the person gets more and more severe and they're taken to religious leaders, they get more severe. When they become really, really, really psychotic, then if you're not careful because of the stigma, then it's hands off from everyone. So 
I, I wish I could tell you that everything is hunky-dory where I come from, but they're both positives and negatives, you know. And I guess in every culture, they're positives and negatives. Stigma differs across culture. Like if you mm. see, you know, major differences across cultures or if it just kind of at the end of the day boils down to the same thing, then maybe Mariam, you may have some insights on that as well. But, you know, is it very different types of stigma or is it at the end of the day that there's just a stigma that if you're, you know, unwell in your head is just problematic and you're going to be, you know, like a shame and you're just going to be put aside. I mean, generally, I, I think it's different. Yeah, there are some commonalities, but it's things in the culture that make stigma either worse or better. And I like to think in every culture, you've got both good and bad. I've given you the example in my culture, really about how these things and also how it is interpreted so i i know in some cultures they will work with traditional healers and i i can't remember where this place but they were getting traditional healers to know when to refer <laughs> you understand in terms of like mental health and apparently they found these traditional healers they they basically had different categories maybe it didn't map onto icd 10 criteria but they had some understanding and so they reached an understanding of when a traditional healer could refer, you know, imagine a traditional healer writing a referral letter, you know, or whatever. So it's like I said, it's basically having those conversations, being able to work with churches, mosques or mm -hmm. Hindu temples or synagogues, you know, the likes. But, you know, that reminds me of this. I think it was a podcast that I, I listened to about how in India there are lots of traditional healers that work with communities and they are more affordable than traditional western medicine so a lot of people go to them so instead of trying to eradicate them what they tried to do was to train these traditional healers in more western allopathic medicine mm. and they worked together and they reached these communities that otherwise would have not gotten mm. to western medicine so they would have treated i don't know um, a dog bite potential rabies mm. with with some local herb, mm. I don't know, formulation that wouldn't necessarily be the most indicated for that case. But mm. because they were all embedded in the same healthcare system, a lot more people ended up being in the system that way. Mm. And I think that can be a really powerful way of working with local slash alternative people that are already embedded in the communities and they have a very immense reach and, and very good work that they do. I think trust is a huge part, as you mentioned earlier, Akeem, you know, there's mm. a lack of trust in the services and authorities here. Um, and then having someone who's already embedded within mm. the culture that you you know you can go to, yes. it's another it's another way yes. in. And sometimes it it works like, for example, in mental health act assessments when people aren't opening up, and this is where knowing the culture mm. comes in, where someone is you 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 say something. So sometimes like you meet someone from an urban area, and you just throw in a slang. Sometimes it's hypothesis, and like. They look at you different. And I've seen that with some mental health act assessments. Like maybe you've used the words like, do you have any problems from ops? <laughs> Greet them or with you know, a wild you, one. You throw in like ends. <laughs> exactly. So, no, and I'm not saying, for me, I won't force it really. But sometimes when you mention those things, they look at you. And then there's this moment of, okay, this guy understands my world and they open up. I've certainly seen it because you're... And again, I'm not saying you force it because obviously... Not everyone will be able to do that. But because you understand some things in their culture, you might be able to discuss it. But also, there's some people from 
from your culture that are on a whole different tip and also being able to respect that as well, really, you know, because, you know, black folk, people of color are different. We have had different upbringings. The experience of, say, an African might be different from some mm. from the Caribbean and someone who would define themselves as black British, you know. So, yeah. That really links back to this, this idea that you just need to find sometimes the right, the right therapist, the right, like, healthcare professional to help you and to understand you. Because mm. I think we're always told, you know, oh, you need to find the, you know, the right therapist to work with you. You need to find somebody that you click with. And I guess that's why it's so important to have representation in medicine across, you know, the like the background that you can that the, the health professionals can have, because it means they're going to click with different types of patients across the board. I think I remember reading a lot of people saying, I think it was around the time of uh, George Floyd, but a lot, a lot of black people searching for therapists and saying, I want a black therapist because they understand the level of stress mm. of, of what's happening now that somebody who's white just you just won't get it yeah representation is so key it's so key. no definitely just being definitely. able to speak to someone who's from a similar background mm. or looks like you mm. makes you more comfortable already my friend pan is she she actually wrote a blog about a very recent one actually about mental health of ethnic minorities she works for this non-profit oh she co-founded it actually um, non-profit organization called Identity International and it's a really interesting blog I've sent it in the chat and we'll link it we'll link it for our mm. listeners as well but definitely worth a read but yeah they, they they interviewed quite a few people of color about it and they they expressed those views that they wanted to speak to someone who understood you know just understood their experience a bit better I wanted to quickly share this with you because I think it's something you might appreciate and I was talking to the girls about this before. Yeah. So basically, I attended this. Um, I was doing some mentoring for some master students who were doing the course that I did. Um, and it was specifically for women of colour. And um, it was run by a lovely woman called Diana, Diana Osagi. I might be mm. saying her name wrong, but yeah. Yes, Osagi. That's Nigerian. <laughs> Osagi. Rapping. Yeah, she was, she was absolutely wicked. She did um, some sessions with us and taught us some different tools and skills and ways of looking at ourselves in a different way mm -hmm. um, as women of colour. And she taught us about this terminology, which I've taken forward with me since that moment. Mm. And I share it with people I come across all the time. And it's that... Instead of, you know, the terminology like BAME, mm. like ethnic minority, mm. and there's like almost like inherent, like it's got negative connotations to the word minority, mm. almost like, you know, lesser, smaller, mm. even if it's not intentional, it's there. You become like a marginalized group kind of thing. Instead of using that, she used people of majority background because mm. people of colour make up 80% of the world's population, roughly. So now I've started going around saying... I love that. ...person love of that. majority background. Yeah. It is empowering. Like, it mm. feels it feels better um, than saying, mm. oh, I'm BAME. Mm. But, yeah, I thought I would share it with you, just because it's a really fun... I like that. I ...way like of that. looking at it. I might Positive. bite that. I know in hip-hop <laughs> you're not supposed to bite lyrics, but I might just bite that. <laughs> that we have to ask everyone due to the name of the podcast obviously is Akeem right this minute what's at the back of your mind what's at the back of my mind yeah Nand Nando's 
<laughs> Next. Okay, what what's the standard Nando's order though? What's the oh. what's the order you get? I go into Nando's. Know. Sorry, I'm, this isn't a shameless plug for Nando's. You don't get your twenty percent discount energy. But I'm just saying. You sponsor Nando's. Please. For me, it's you know the peri peri chicken. And let's not deal with stereotypes. I just like chicken. I just happen to be black and like chicken. So, you know, let's keep like David Chappelle. Let's keep. But when they ask me how hot I want it, I say punish me and I stick my tongue out. But then people thought I was weird. So I stopped sticking my tongue out. But I'm like, punish me hot. You know, and I will get that black card at Nando's. Next. <laughs> the journey to the black card. Absolutely. Love it. You've got to keep us updated. I know. We could all go for a Nando's date. What would you say that you are a self-proclaimed expert in? And it can be anything, like absolutely oh, anything. Man, the pressure, man. I've never been tongue-tied. <laughs> self-proclaimed expert in. Hmm. I think it is. And I know it always boils down to food. I know how to conquer any buffet. That's, so mm, that's a that. very good skill. <laughs> I approach yeah, all... every buffet strategically. That's all I'm going to say. He's got the straps. Yes. He's got the straps. I don't just in. walk into a buffet. It's planned. <laughs> we won't ask you for your secrets. No, I can't. You gotta pay for that. You can't spill spill those on, on the podcast. It's fine. Thank you so much um, for you. being a guest with us it today. It's been incredible talking to you and finding out more about what you do. Thank you so much. Hi everyone, it's Julia. This episode of At the Back of Your Mind was recorded on the 8th of June 2022, featuring our host Mariam, Caroline and Juliette, with special guest Dr. Akim Sule. You can find Akim and more about his work over on Twitter at EvoPsych. Be sure to visit inspiredemind.org slash at the back of your mind for more episode transcripts, social media, and contact information. A big thank you to our editors Lily Murdoch, Melissa Cose, and Amina Begum, and to our research team Naria Masiartunia and Celeste Miller. Thank you also to Inspire the Mind and to our editor-in-chief, Professor Carmine Pariante, for helping us bring this podcast to the air. And of course, thanks to you for listening. See you next time.